welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and we have a bit of a different episode for you this week. A little bit of a change of pace. But before I explain in what way it's different, I'd like to take you down a little trip down memory lane. See, in the early 90s, I was a huge fan of children's educational television. I know, I know, it's a big surprise coming from the guy who does an educational comedy show wearing brightly colored outfits. But I used to eat up shows like Bill Nye the Science Guy, Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego, and especially Beekman's World. I don't know if you remember Beekman's World. It was a show that combined cutting-edge special effects, puppeteering, and comedy to illustrate complex scientific concepts for kids. There was even a dude in a rat costume who burped and farted. I loved this show. It perfectly spoke to my nine-year-old sensibilities. Now, you'd think a show like that would just succeed in the cutthroat marketplace of children's television because of how how great it was, right? I mean, kids like to learn and they like farting rats, so it should have been an easy sell. Well, it wasn't until recently that I found out that Bigman's World and many of your favorite kids' educational shows like it that you remember from growing up wouldn't have existed at all if not for a particular law passed by Congress. See, in the late 80s, there was very little educational programming on children's TV. And what programming there was, to put it plainly, sucked ass. I mean, seriously, go back and watch one of those supposed classics, a G.I. Joe, a Transformers, or a Gummy Bears. You will see shows that are badly animated, designed purely to sell toys with incredibly long commercial breaks. Because kids would watch anything, right? Including tons of commercials for toys based on the exact show they just watched. Now, if you think that shoving loud, aggressive ads down the eye holes of impressionable children without even giving them a good show in return sounds, uh, exploitative and gross, well, legislators in the late 80s would agree with you. And that is why Congress passed the Children's Television Act of 1990, which did two things. First, it put strict limits on how many minutes of commercials children's broadcast TV could have. Very good step. And secondly, it required networks to include genuinely educational children's programming on their schedules. So suddenly, we went from a world in which, if you tried to pitch a show about science to a broadcast network, they'd probably say, hey, get the fuck out of here. How are we going to sell robot toys with that science crap? To one where suddenly every network was suddenly scrambling to buy educational shows that met the new mandate. And it was shows like Beekman's World, Bill Nye, and others that arose to fill that market. Now, look, I'm not going to say this was a perfect law. As with most regulations, there were a lot of unintended negative side effects, too. A lot of networks tried to get around the rule by making crappy, quasi-educational shows. Like, for instance, a variety show hosted by Brazilian actress, model, recording star, and businesswoman, Shusha. Not a lot of good material for the growing brain there. But... The fact remains that these networks needed a nudge from the federal government to know what was good for them and put on at least some of the educational shows kids turned out to love. I mean, again, these shows turned out to be hits. That law is literally the only reason that Bill Nye and Beekman's World were on the air at all. Today, though, things have changed. See, that law only affected broadcast stations that used the public airwaves. It had no jurisdiction over cable television and definitely none over the Internet, which hadn't even really become popular yet. And since those places, cable and the Internet, are where the majority of kids watch their content today, once again, we're in a world where the majority of what kids are watching is crappy content that serves adult pocketbooks far more than it does their growing brains. 
Except, of course, the new Nickelodeon kids show that I'm hosting, The Crystal Maze, which, just to remind you, premieres January 24th on Nickelodeon. That show is very quality. <laughs> Please watch it. But, look, that brings me to the topic of today's show. Like I said, it's a little bit different. See, normally on this show, we have scholars, experts, other smart folks on to blow your mind with the revelatory things they know. Today, though, I wanted to bring on one of the artists who inspired and taught me so much and blew my mind so much when I was growing up, an artist that I didn't really realize how much he influenced my own style until I went back and watched his work and figured out how deeply my work is influenced by his. Look, I'm just going to come out with it. I'm talking about Beekman himself, or Paul Zaloom, the actor who played Beekman for so many years. He was gracious enough to join me on the show today, and in this interview, we get into Paul's life, his career, what it was like making a classic in children's educational television, and I try to contain my nervousness and excitement talking to a formal idol of mine in whose footsteps I am following. <laughs> So, like I said, bit of a change of pace, but fear not, I'm not turning this show into an infotainment version of Mark Maron's podcast. We will be back next week with more fascinating expert interviews. And before we get into it, I'd like to share with you a couple tour dates. On January 18th, I will be at the San Francisco Sketch Fest with Chloe Hilliard opening for me. And on January 30th, I will be performing at the Irvine Improv in lovely Irvine, California. If you want tickets to those shows, go to my website, adamconover.net, and grab them. Without further ado, here's my interview with Paul Zaloom. Thank you so much for sitting here and talking to me. It's uh, uh, is it actually, strangely, not the first time we've met because when I was a kid, my mom ran a small science museum on Long Island and we were big fans of the show. And you came to the museum and you did a demo when I was... I don't know, I, I'm uh, 12 years old or something like that. And so I met you then very brief. I'm sure I was like a shell-shocked little child, like, hello, Mr. Zaloom, you know. Uh, but it was, uh, and I think you did a demo with dry ice, like that, one of those types of things. Right. Um, but uh, it was, yeah, it's really it's really remarkable uh, because, yeah, I mean, we were huge fans of Beekman's World in my household. And, uh, and the reason I wanted to talk to you was because, you know, I created my show Adam ruins everything. People listening might have seen it before. Uh, that uh, you know, I created about five years ago, um, and you know, sort of synthesizing all the tools I had as a comedian, stand-up comedy and sketch comedy, sort of get across information I had learned, etc. And then you know, I was late at night doing what you do sometimes. I was on the internet, and I was like just going down memory lane. Oh, let me look up, you know, oh some clips for old TV shows. Oh, Beak Benzer, I love that show. And I went and looked at clips, and I realized, holy shit. So much of what I do on my show was clearly influenced by this without me realizing it. Um, the you know the the synthesis of like educational uh, material and comedy, but also just like the speed of it, the way you're popping around, the way you're talking to another person. You say today we're going to learn about this, and they say really, what do you? That sounds ridiculous. You say oh no, it's going to work or whatever. Uh, all of that really was it like seeped into me in a way that I, that I didn't realize. And uh, I don't know, it felt like it would come full circle to talk to you about it. Right on. Well, I think what, what's interesting is that we, what we have in common is we take information in our work and we make it entertaining Yeah, and we use humor and comedy. And yeah. as I've become intro introduced to your work, I see there's a great deal of common insanity and, yeah. and interest. Well, how did you end up on children's educational television? Uh, well, I am an old bread and puppet theater guy mm -hmm. and bread and puppet is a um, sort of a 
neo-German expressionist anarchist theater company founded like 53 years ago by this guy Peter Schumann and his wife Elke Schumann. And I joined in 71. And then after a bunch of years, I started making my own work. And I did... I've done all different kinds of puppetry, uh, shadow puppets, rod puppets, found objects was sort of my thing. Um, like you, like you find something and then you, just, you bring yeah. it to life. Yeah. Junk, debris, appliances, toys, anything. And you know, that's comes from pop art. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by it. I had a found object museum in the garage and, <laughs> You know, I thought Andy Warhol was great because it pissed my parents off so bad. And um, and so it was like a natural segue. I mean, it's all comes from Duchamp, you know, the father of, of yeah, us yeah, all. Yeah. Um, but uh, it just became interesting to me to take objects and animate them as characters. Right. And that's a soul of puppeteering, right? To take an inanimate object right. and bring it to life and like give it give it. Of uh, humanity that we empathize with, right? But then to take a shoe or a sandwich box or you know a schmata or something and jiggle it around and find out what it can do and how it works and how it expresses itself and what it yeah. sounds like and what it makes sense for the character to be, you know, that was interesting. So I started doing the found object work in like '77. And then segued into doing Contestoria, which is storytelling with pictures. That that was part of our practice of Bread and Puppet. Mm. And um, it's commonly called film before film. I mean, film is storytelling with pictures. But yeah. Contestoria, which is thousands of years old and exists in every culture in the world. Uh, so I, I did slideshows. And I had a slideshow about food processing. Hmm. Um, where I photographed different um, uh, industrial brochures and industrial, you know, information and packaging and all that. And then I was a food technologist. I wore a lab coat and a chef's toque. Mm -hmm. And the show was called Food, P-H-O-O-D. <laughs> and it was, I did that show for years, a slideshow, and did it around New York and here, there, and everywhere. It was a lot of fun. It was yeah. great to have the get, you know, to have the image drop just at the right time in this storytelling technique using pictures. Yeah. And Beekman, they were looking around in Hollywood for somebody to be the guy. And they were only able to come up with like sitcom dads, is what they told <laughs> me. So they had to start looking beyond. The Hollywood, you know, which is right. amazing when you think of how competitive it is. Yeah. And the director knew me from the old days in New York because we had tried to pitch my found object shows um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, as a as a TV thing or whatever. And he they I, I sent my a tape of me doing this food show with the slides and I'm wearing the lab coat and they're like, oh, this guy's, you know, this is the guy. And they brought me out to do a screen test and. You know, I'm lousing it up. Things aren't going well. And I knocked over a thing of water. And then I just ad-libbed, improvised. Yeah. And, and even people in the biz are suckers for that shit. So, <laughs> you know, they were like, oh, my God, that was amazing. So I got the job. Incredible. Do you think it helped that you wore a lab coat in your show? Was that like, like yeah. a dress for the job you want kind of way? Yeah. They, I, think they, I think they were desperate. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I mean, it's, I mean, they certainly would have set out to hire a, a avant-garde puppeteer from from New York to to host a kids show. That wouldn't be their first thought. No, but I think 
puppeteers were good at handling stuff mm -hmm. and it's not that big a stretch to play a lot of different characters i mean right. you do it with puppets in your hands or you're jiggling around with or whatever and then to just put the crap down and to be the character to me is not that big a leap so i ended up playing i don't know 30 or 40 different characters on the show like really like through the via puppeteering uh, no, no. On the TV show, yeah. um, we had this dead guys in science thing mm -hmm. where I would say, oh, well, you're interested in uh, blah, blah, blah. And then I uh, I would just turn around and introduce, you know, Edison or Alexander Graham Bell or Narcissus or whoever. Right. And it would be me playing all those parts. Right. And I had done Galileo in the the first episode i think and yeah. the writers came to me and said can you do other characters and i said yeah i could you know just throw whatever you got at me and i'll figure it out fantastic i mean how did you feel about going from you know i assume that when you're doing that work in theater in new york you've got your sort of vision and your goals as an artist etc and that you know this might have been a little bit tangential to that you're now a science educator and people know you as i mean it's you know, however many years later and we're talking about it here, <laughs> we're sitting here talking about it. Um, uh, how does that, uh, you know, how, how did that feel and how does it feel now to, to have, have your impact through that work? Well, I, you know, my work had always been about disseminating information in a, right. you know, amusing way, both very specifically and then just in more general ways with uh, political and social issues going on. So to take information and make it entertaining and interesting was not that big a leap for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, working for the man was like, that was definitely, <laughs> that was yeah, definitely. I mean, I on mean, broadcast network TV, that is very the man. In the early 90s, there's no, uh, you know, there's no YouTube or any sort of like indie-ness about it. You've got to like sell cereal or you're not going to get on television. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that was a little challenging in the beginning, <laughs> uh, getting used to that idea. I um, had wanted to be a writer and help create the show. And they said, no, forget it. Because I had no juice and, you know. It was like, no, we're hiring you as an actor and here's your salary and shut up. Got it. So I said, okay, well, then I'm going to volunteer. I'll just um, volunteer to help create the show. Yeah. And so I hung out and was in the creative process and did all of that stuff. Because, you know, life's too short not to do the fun stuff. And I figured the more I plugged into it, again, sort of arrogantly, the better the show would be. The yeah. more The more I could bring my own nutty sensibility to it. Um, and, and, you know, the show, people may think it was influenced by, uh, Mr. Wizard, but it was definitely influenced by, um, Soupy Sales. Mm. That was much more in line and Lord Buckley, Lord Richard Buckley, the great, um, comedian of the sixties, the, the great master mm. of, uh, of everything verbal possible. I would have been shocked to find out that you weren't involved in the creative because it, it feels so much like it all is coming from that character who you who you must have created. I mean, the uh, the little details of, uh, you know, the way that he moves and like the little quick turns that that, you know, you were doing as a performer of of, uh, you know, the uh, little hand movements, the little twitches and, and all those sorts of things that must have been things you created and the entire show is coming out of that. Yeah, but I get like all the credit and mm -hmm. it's the writers who wrote uh, about the theory of relativity and explained it to six to 10 year olds in six minutes. Yeah. I didn't do that <laughs> and I couldn't do that. 
And the director, um, Jay Dubin, his brilliant visual sense and the way he shot the show is completely different than any show on television. It, it's br- So one of the things that I really have an appreciation for when I went back and watched it was the early 90s was such a creative time in television, but specifically children's television. And uh, and there's a lot of shows that if I go back and watch, I'm like, oh yeah, cartoons were doing really interesting things. There's like an animation renaissance happening. I've gone back and watched literally a commercial for Kraft Macaroni and Cheese that was like gorgeous, that was, you know, was clay animation and stuff like that. Um, so there was a lot going on, but your show specifically, the visual sense of it it's so much more beautiful and fast paced and interesting looking than you would think it would have to be in order to get on, you know, CBS Saturday morning or whatever it was. Right. Um, like the, like there's different interesting angles every moment and there's stuff flying in and out. Like it's the, 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 the background is fascinating to look at. There's just so much happening compressed into every second. Yeah. Again, it wouldn't have happened if we didn't have people like Wayne White, uh, who worked on Pee Wee's show and was a renowned painter and uh, dude, artist. What, what did he do on it? Uh, he did, the, the. I guess it was the set design. Yeah. But he also did the animations, which were done on an Omega, which was already like five years out of date when we did the show. But he did these very primitive animations that were really cool. And then uh, Bob Breen, who sort of realized those uh, those visuals with all the giant props and stuff in the back and and... Plus, we had this great leadership uh, and the executive producer, uh, Mark Waxman, who sort of put all these elements together. Uh, And then Jay's unique look, uh, which was basically we had two cameras with wide angle lenses very close to each other, practically touching each other. And he never in all of the episodes did a zoom, boom, any of that crap. Mm. The cameras were locked off. And the performers move back and forth between the cameras. Ah, yeah. I mean, there's a boom shot, I think, in the beginning credits or something. And we had a couple of guest directors and they they probably did move the camera. But he really just had them locked off and they were so closer, they were touching. And so that and, you know, plus the fact that I'm very close to the camera. I mean, no, never much more than a few feet. Yeah. And often much closer. And the the show is very popular today in Latin America. I've heard about this. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. That it, uh, from what I've read, you know, the show. I mean, the show was popular in the United States. It was rerun for a for a bunch of years. I understand now it's kind of hard to find actually because it wasn't on DVD. It's on Netflix for a while. It's sort of bouncing right. around from rights to rights. But in Latin America, it was like on for a long time, and it's far more popular there than it was here. And you. Have tour there now? Do you not? Yeah, yeah. I I go down there as as much as I can. <laughs> um, I mean, I played in September in Mexico City to an audience of ten thousand people. Wow! And there was one point two million watching the live stream. Are you kidding me? I no. I'm happily not kidding you. <laughs> and what I was getting at was, you know, so why? Well, there's something about the show that appeals to the Latin sensibility, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think kids TV down there was maybe not so hot in those days. That mm. probably contributed. But also the fact that the guy is looking at the kids like right in the eye and yeah. very close to the camera. Because I, I'll say to people, why do you love being, why are people like running after the car I'm in and blocking traffic and pounding <laughs> on the windows and all this rock star shit? Like, why is this happening? 
and they say, well, because you explain science so well. And it's like, no, no, sorry. (laughs) There's got to be something more visceral than that deep down. It's emotional. I mean, they have emotional responses. I meet people and they weep. Yeah. They weep and and a lot of people want to hug me and they thank me for making their childhood and all this stuff. Yeah. And so that's an emotional thing. And that comes, I think, from being very close to the camera, talking to the kids directly, that yes. direct address thing. And I think the character is probably pretty warm and and yeah. friendly or something. And you're speaking to them with, with uh, intelligence and respect for their intelligence that like, oh, I'm going to tell you this. You can, you're smart enough for it. I'm not talking down to you. Here it is. <laughs> right. It's going to be cool. You know, we're, we're doing this together in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I I did Sesame Street. Uh, I went on Sesame Street as a puppeteer, mm. and to explain to the characters in Sesame Street what a puppet is, what a puppeteer is, and you know they're not puppets. They're, I don't know what the hell they are, but whatever they are, they're not puppets because. I couldn't say, well, yeah, I'm a puppeteer, just like the guy that's jiggling you around right now. This is a bath toy. It does seem like explaining to a like a pig what a pork sandwich is or something like that. There's something there's something right. strangely perverse about about it. But but I'm sorry, please go on. Well the the one of the suits there said, you know, you don't talk to the puppet like it's a kid or an imbecile. Mm-hmm. You talk to him like normally. And yeah. I, I was yeah, I mean, because I I don't know what the hell that thing is, but it's not a kid or an imbecile. So yeah, um, it was you don't, pa- it was, you, don't, you don't patronize them. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's tricky sometimes. I mean, when I get kids on stage, yeah, uh, my tone probably softens a little bit. <laughs> um, when I do these shows in in Mexico, these stage shows, yeah. a lot of it is improv based because it seems to me that the improv brings the spirit of the show and the sensibility of the show closer to what it was on screen somehow yeah does it make you optimistic at all that that you know a a, a science science educating character is like such a huge hit uh that that people are pounding on the uh, i mean i i honestly wish that that was the case in the united states that i mean you know people love uh you know bill knight and you know people i'm uh, I, I you have many fans here as well but like right. you know that rock star treatment for a science educator is very nice to hear about I, I really hope that it portends well for the future of uh, Latin America as, yeah. again, self-aggrandizing as that sounds. I've had hundreds of people say to me, I'm a scientist today because of you. I'm a doctor. Yeah. I'm a biologist. I'm an astrophysicist. I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. I mean, I hear this all the time and they say, oh, I know you must be sick of hearing this, but I, I don't know how you could possibly get sick of hearing that. Yeah. So I think it's had a really positive impact. And to see a lot of people in Mexico and Brazil really excited about Beekman, really excited about science, technology, um, that seems very positive and encouraging to me. Yeah. Well, on that note, I have a lot more I want to ask you. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Paul Zaloom. I just want to talk a little bit more about what it was like to shoot the show itself. And it's a little bit, it's almost like inside baseball, just cause I also, you know, make a, make a show like this, but um, I love the, uh, the interplay between you and the other performers on the show. I know there are a number over the years uh, is so tight and wonderful to watch. And it, it seems like it must've been a huge amount of fun to do it. 
Yeah, we pretty much laughed all day long and goofed around. Yeah. We just had a really nice, relaxed atmosphere. The set was open. People wandering off the lot and just hung out. And Yeah. Um, you know, the prop guy, he was a comedian also, and, and uh, Ron Giancullo is the guy's name, and he would he would make a suggestion for a gag because he was Ray. He was the hand that came in on the mm-hmm. side, which is very, very super Yeah, you're, you're, you're running gag of like, Ray, hand me that, like the right. off-screen producer arm, yeah. And he would always have his pinky elevated <laughs> and he'd do everything with a flourish and he would make suggestions. And he told me on the next show he went on to, he made a suggestion and the producer said, one more suggestion and you're fired. <laughs> so it was not you know we were open to anything and it was a lot of fun and then the cast um you know lester the rat was played by a puppeteer like mm-hmm. like me he was not hired as an actor he was hired to jiggle around some puppet and um he was a harvard educated guy who <laughs> you had, put him in a giant rat suit <laughs> yeah he showed up expecting to do this puppet yeah and jay in the course of developing the show he says what the hell do i want a puppet for what's a puppet gonna do it's just going to be cut to and he's going to have some joke, some lame joke, and then cut back. It's not helpful. And I'm a puppeteer. I'm dedicated to puppetry, but you only want puppets when you need them. Yeah. And it was a bad idea. So he said, let's put him, let's put him as a guy in a rat suit. Not a rat, but a guy in a rat suit. Yeah. And so he showed up expecting to do a puppet. And we said, well, no, actually, you're going to be in this suit. And that was quite a shock for him. But he really grew into it. And he was incredible. There's like there's like a subversive quality to the show as well that, you know, it's not a it's not Mr. Wizard, right? It's not a squeaky clean, uh, you know, science show. It's like there's you know, your sidekick is a guy in a rat suit who's like disgusting. There's like all sorts of bodily noises. You know, kids love that kind of thing. I was just watching a clip today where you encourage kids to do a demo at home where they swab sweat from between their toes and put it in a, you know, sort of medium of like uh of jello right. to grow a stinky foot smell um and the only you know concession you make is don't open it in your house but because it, it creates this jar of like a horrible aroma it's dis- it's a disgusting demo to do but like what a fun thing to tell children to do like kids well, the, it must have yeah, it up. the guy who created the character jock church mm-hmm. he did that experiment because um uh he he got an idea to create a comic that would run in the newspaper. Right. That he Beekman created. And Jacks. Yeah. Um, you can with Beekman and Jacks. And it was syndicated in over 300 newspapers. And it was the first comic that was created on a Mac, uh, according to him. And hmm. he, it, he did it for many, many years. And he'd have experiments and uh, things he could do at home. And uh, one of them was this thing with the with the toes. And when he opened the jar and took a whiff, he instantly threw up. <laughs> so, it's probably why we and said, he said Don't we should do this put this inside. on television. Yeah. But a lot of that sort of he he was a like a very radical queer um 
eccentric artist and uh, his kind of rejectionist attitude came through in the comic. There was a little tinge of sort of anarchy and questioning authority that came across in the comic more so than the TV show. Well, that's so fascinating that such a seminal, you know, kids program was essentially, yeah, created by a bunch of avant-garde, you know, weirdos uh, in that way, or, you know, not... uh, 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 you know, people who are don't didn't at the time represent, you know, the sort of conservative uh, mainstream American media approach that was so prevalent on kids TV. Maybe that's part of the success of it. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. If you're coming from the weird land, then you're going to end up with some weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing about Mr. Wizard, I was not a fan as a kid. And when he was asked about Nye's show and my show, he says, well, I don't understand why they have to be funny. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't really have a response. Oh, I mean, how do you so respond sad. to that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I watched Mr. Wizard as a kid, but that bums me out that he would. I mean, I guess if you're a real purist, you're like, the science should be enough. But, you know, everything's better if it's funny. Yes, agreed. <laughs> that's, you know, that's our credo. I mean, got to have the jokes. Did you have a favorite uh, demo you ever did that, to film? or Oh, this is exactly like when people ask me what my favorite thing to ruin was. So maybe that's a frustrating question. Uh-huh. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think about well, it? Well, I love going up the nose. I mean, that was a fun <laughs> thing. You know, we were doing a show on snot in, in the early episodes. And, um, and we, we had um, three women on the show, uh, Alana Ubach and Eliza Schneider and Santa Moses. And this was Alana's season, the first season. And uh, and she, um, I'm covered in snot, and I'm waving my hands around. At some point, some snot came off my hand and like went into her eye. <laughs> and she does this whole slow burn of taking this snot out of, out of her eye. That was uh, that was pretty classic. But and that was she, an improvised moment because those moments always seem so specific. Yeah. Well, we had a rule that no matter what goes wrong, you have to keep going. Yeah. Because a lot of time, these bloopers or mistakes would end up in the cut. And plus, it was just more fun to try to dig yourself out of a hole yeah. like we do on stage all the time. Yeah. Uh, and to see where it goes. And a real moment is always beats a scripted moment every time. So, yeah, if you roll through it, you might have gold there. Yeah. And also, I used to, whenever I got gunk dunked on me, I made sure that when I gestured that my hands would stop very abruptly so the slime would end up on the crew because they would they are all laughing they all think it's hilarious i was like okay man you're gonna get it now and and so it would it would fly all over the place but jay said to me so if you're gonna do a show on snot like how would you do that and i said well we should go up the nose i said you know build a corridor and put cover it in snot and i'll be like an astronaut and he got the idea of using a sauna tube, you know, for pouring concrete foundations. And we did a whole NASA thing and a hazmat suit. Then, you know, the nose hairs were broom bristles. and Oh, man. And we had $700 worth of industrial um, Hollywood snot in there. And it was all covered with bubble wrap. And, and I remember the snot, like, squishing between my toes in the, in the <laughs> suit. And, and then they left me in there and they took a five. And... <laughs> I don't know how they forgot about me, but it was actually, I was sort of running out of air. I couldn't really breathe. And I'm going, guys, could somebody get me out of here? And the executive (laughs) booth is like a half mile away, you know, listening to the feed in his office. And he sort of panicked. (laughs) 
I loved how much often how often you as a kid, I think the ones that stuck with me the most are the ones where you seemingly put yourself in harm's way, where you would do a demo where there was like a bowling ball hanging from a rope, like on a pendulum, and you'd hold it up to your face and let it go. And to prove that, you know, because of whatever the you know the laws of thermodynamics, the ball is not going to be able to come back and smack you in the face. And the other characters are terrified. Beekman, you're going to kill yourself. Right. This ball, it's going to break your face open. Um, or uh, the one that I just rewatched today where... You know, you uh, you build an arch and demonstrate the keystone. And I I specifically remembered this. You know, I remembered this segment before I went back and looked at it on YouTube. Um, you demonstrate how an arch is built, how the keystone works, um, and then stand on top of it and like bring spikes below. Um, and like, there's a special angle on the spikes. Everyone's like, oh no, spikes! Uh, like all of that drama makes uh, makes the information stick. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me. The scariest thing was when we had a lion on the show and wow. the lion was behind me and then there's me and then there's the camera and behind the camera is the trainer and he's got like a porterhouse steak on a stick <laughs> and he's waving it back and forth over the camera and the lion's head is like bobbing back and forth looking at the steak and I'm between the the lion and the steak. And what I, were you trying to demonstrate with this? Well, I uh, I was talking about lions, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember, and I, I don't care. Because I was just like, and we didn't do, I think we did one take of, of everything. Because I was really, it was really unnerving. Do you think... Uh... Do you think a show like like yours is something that could or would be produced now? Because I notice, uh, you know, a dearth of, of, you know, of that kind of programming on television now. Why, why do you think that is? Well, the show costs between 200 and 225, something like that, an episode. Uh-huh. That's cheap and, today's standards, but that was years ago. Right. But nobody's going to spend that kind of money on a kid's show mm. unless there's heavy merchandising associated with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm I'm not involved in the TV business, but that's my understanding. Yeah. Um, they're just not making live action shows and expensive shows, a lot of clip shows and all the rest of it. Yeah. Because the show was mandated by the Children's Television Act in 1991 that right. said that if local television stations wanted to get their licenses renewed, they had to have a certain amount of educational and or informational programming, uh, a certain number of hours, like two and a half hours or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, the networks being super creative, they said, well, the Smurfs, you know, or um, the, the Flintstones teach kids about the past and the Jetsons teach kids <laughs> about the future. And, you know, the Smurfs teach kids about being blue. <laughs> Well, tell me, I know that in addition to uh, Beekman's World, you're also a master puppeteer. Tell me about that work. I'm so curious. Well, uh, I've been doing this since I was um, 19, and uh, it allows me to do all the characters in the solo show. So it's perfect for megalomaniacal uh, <laughs> lunatics. Um, and puppeteers, you know, we traditionally write our shows and build them and design them. We do yeah. everything. I do. I have an artistic partner, Lynn Jeffries, who, who helps me with all that. And we collaborate and do these things. But it's great because you can create whole worlds with puppetry. You can create 
anything you want and have anything happen. I can go to Mars, you know, for nine dollars and just hot glue a, <laughs> you know, a rocket ship to a popsicle right. stick and have it go through the frame or whatever. Tell me more about the found objects work because I'm again so, you know, fascinated by the idea of taking something inanimate and giving it, you know, a spirit and a voice, and that seems like such a you know, elemental part of performance generally. And as a performer, as a comedian, I'm, I'm really sort of interested in these other performance traditions. How does that, how does that work? Tell me more about it. Well, I had worked in Bread and Puppet where the shows were, uh, the puppets were generally, you know, beautifully sculpted, painted, designed by Schumann. And I thought, well, there's not enough jokes and I want it to be more crass and more jokes and, and I thought, God, you know, found objects. And I, I was inspired in part by his using a chair in a show about um, Jesus of Nazareth, where Jesus is played by a giant puppet and by a woman. And at one point, it's a chair, and he's, the chair is being whipped in this scene. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And that just got me into this thing of, oh, objects. So I collected a bunch of crap, and I made a show called The World of Plastic. And um, that was in 77. Then I went on to make many others about, uh, I had one that sort of had a three mile island scene hmm. where I used blenders for the cooling towers. And I had loads that I put in them with soap. <laughs> so they overflow and they make this big mess. And I, This almost sounds like a Beekman-esque like onstage demo, except you're doing it about its political commentary on a nuclear disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, yeah, a lot of crossover with that stuff. Yeah. And the, the thing that's interesting about the objects and it, interesting about puppetry in general is you, it's, it sounds corny or weird, but the puppets really tell you what to do. You don't get to tell them what to do. Really? I mean, you can build stuff into them that allows them to do things. But once you get going with them and you start jiggling them around, they are going to tell you what they can and can't do, what they want to do. You're sort of constrained by the physical nature of the puppet in terms of what it can, what what it's capable of. Yeah, they can't do everything. They can mm -hmm. only do a, a limited amount of things, and there's power in that. There's power in the limitation of that because then they specialize in that. They do that, and you get rid of them. Yeah. Then you do the next little bit of shtick. And it's very visual. It's very visual and gag oriented. In, yes. in my, you know, I mean, doing Shakespeare with puppetry, that I'm, I'm puzzled by that, because I want to see them. Well, I mean, the fighting scenes are great, and the love making. <laughs> you know, when they're screwing, that's always hilarious. But uh, <laughs> I love it. I, yeah, yeah, but there's a certain like built-in comedy to the form that you want to see expressed. You don't necessarily want to uh, like, uh, yeah, a puppet doing uh, Romeo Romeo with Forato is a little bit like, no, this is not what it's good at. Yeah, they're really good at banging and killing. <laughs> at the Punch and Judy show. Yeah, and and you look at the Sicilian marionettes, you know, those the fight scenes and those things are just phenomenal. And they're just yeah. banging around, hitting each other. And so a lot of that and transformations and trick puppets and all of that stuff is really interesting. Well, I... I really appreciate you sitting down to talk with me today. It's been a really, it's, it's been an awesome conversation. And it's also a thrill to meet you at all. So yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Adam. It's been a delight for me as well.
Well, thank you once again to Paul Zaloom for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. That is it for us this week on Factually. I'd like to thank our engineer, Ryan Connor, our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK for our theme song. Once again, you can check out my tour dates or sign up for my mailing list at adamconover.net. Follow me wherever you are on social media at Adam Conover. And until next week, see you then. <laughs>